everybody. Hi, hello, hi, hey. Get in here and let's get high together. I don't know where the cat is. Once again, probably out in the living room with Squeaky Mouse doing her thing, whatever it is. She might show up whenever. I don't know. You know how she is. she got a mind of her own. Make sure, if you can, go over to the Facebook page. Find the High Story Podcast Facebook page over there like that. Follow me on Spotify iTunes, Podbean, wherever you listen. I'm in the middle of figuring out iTunes. It should be up eventually. So do that whenever it's possible there, wherever you can and if you can, if you don't mind. Another way you can help show your support for the show is to donate on PayPal at highstorypodcast at gmail.com. And since it's a free show, I think it's fair. If I make you laugh, you owe me a dollar. Come on, that's fair. At least fair. Come on. Whatever, don't worry about it. Um, thanks to you to everyone who listened last week on Daniel LaPlante. I realized um, I forgot to say where it happened, and as soon as I went to bed that night, it popped into my head, so I wanted to make sure I get that addressed. Um, it's up in Massachusetts, in Townsend, and from the years 1980, 1986 to 1988. My bad, just wanted to clear that up. Hope you enjoyed it regardless. As far as my... Re- uh, rant goes on the AC from a few episodes ago. It's all taken care of. Everything's back to normal now. I've also got the next eight episodes or so picked out because decided to focus a little more on just the ancient history and true crime for now. That'll give us quite a bit of damn near unlimited mat-based humor and things to talk about for the foreseeable future, because this is what we're doing every Sunday. So hope you guys look forward to that. And this week is no different. We're taking a little break from true crime because the last two were insane and my brain hurts. So this week we're going to look at ancient Mayans. And we're going to look at also, besides their how they got started, their daily life, their different rituals and religions and gods and things like that, what they ate, We're also going to look at their very close relationship with drugs, like weed and mushrooms and pretty much everything they could get their hands on. It's going to be peppered in throughout this, so expect that. It's going to be really fun. So the structure for today is going to be just a little bit different. It's going to be more of a broad overview of events, starting a little bit before the Common Era and going up to around 900 AD or so. So I'll try to provide specific dates for specific things whenever available. Otherwise, it'll just, I'll try to keep it in ascending order as we go. Also, drugs all the way through. Fuck yeah, I need to go get more high real quick. Excuse me. Alright, so now that that's taken care of, um, there's a really cool documentary that I saw on YouTube from Natural Geographic called Lost World of the Maya. They centered mainly on the city of Kiwik, I think it's pronounced, which is, that's Mayan for gathering place. And what they found there actually predates a lot of the commonly accepted theories around when the culture was active. Somewhere among the jungles and hills and ruins of the Yucatan Peninsula down there, somewhere in the Puuc region, P-U-U-C, but pronounced Puuc, there is a pyramid somewhere down there in the jungles. And the pyramid itself, well, we've known about it since about the 1940s, but it's what lies underneath it that's intriguing. Excavations revealed that digging underneath the nearly 56-foot-tall pyramid reveals some sort of ceremonial platform 
which are very similar to types present in common era Maya cultures that we're aware of. And these platforms date all the way back to 700 BCE. There's also some evidence as towards the rapid abandonment and disappearance of a lot of these major cities of the time, but we'll get into more of that a little bit later on. But some of the homes that they found over there that were dating back to 880 AD, which is around the time that they abandoned a lot of these cities, they found a few clues at some of these homes. At the top of the 200 feet stone staircase, which they've dubbed Stairway to Heaven. Uh, yeah, I get it though. Uh, the temple there and many of the homes had pottery, corn grinders, stone tools, various remains of people and ancestors just left around. One of the homes there had, they discovered keystone blocks with inscriptions on it, a big feasting bowl, which kind of would have been the thing that they would have taken with them if it a permanent move was planned. Uh, some of the other places was there's only a half-finished plaza built. One side was stuccoed, the other was just a bunch of like loose bowling ball sized stones. Again, more grinding stones leaned up against doorways and kitchen tools, things like that stacked in rooms and abandoned, just pushed off over in the corner. Ancestral remains just Dead grandparents next to elaborate tools and jade beads just thrown up in the corner in the kitchen, just left there. And all these things are most likely very important to these people. So they had planned to come back to retrieve these important items, but then just never did for whatever reason. Not entirely certain. And it's important to point out here that the Maya were not just a single group of people. There were many different ethnicities and tribes with regional languages and dialects that would appear throughout the areas that they called home. Different ideas regarding culture, religion, accents, words, food, and of course drugs. Don't forget, we're going to be a lot of drugs today. It's a very prominent aspect of Mayan society. Don't worry, it's coming. But first, we're going to go way, way back in time. Way back in time. Not quite to dinosaurs, but it's close. We are at the very least at this point in what is widely considered ancient times, so... And it's in these ancient times that the Maya began to rise up across most of Central America and Mexico. Today, these areas are the areas of the Yucatan Peninsula, Quintana Roo, I'm too stoned to roll my R's right now, Campeche, Tabasco, and Chiapas in Mexico and it follows further south down into Guatemala, Belize, El Salvador, and Honduras. The name Maya comes from an ancient city called Mayapan. And in my mind, the Maya at this point, they have a lot of... It's easier for me to grasp what's happening here if I look at it like similar to how Native American tribes operate. They have different names for different tribes or ethnicities and different dialects and local languages such as the... I think it's Kuiche Maya in the south, or it might be Kiche. I'm not 100% sure. I've heard both ways. They're down in the southern regions, and the Yucatec are in the northern regions. And they were not really a unified people. They had clusters of small towns and villages which were ruled by local kings, and then occasionally some of these towns and villages would progress up into bigger cities, and then... There's, of course, the occasional dominance of the weaker villages. 
All right, now we are into the Archaic period from the years 7000 BCE to 2000 BCE. At this point in human society, there were a lot of hunter-gatherer tribes and very nomadic lifestyles. But thanks to a bit of an agricultural revolution of sorts, they began to cultivate lots of different types of crops, such as maize and squash, beans, chilies, and manioc, or cassava, I think that's how you say that. They also started domesticating animals like dogs and turkeys. And many of these villages go back to about 2000 or 1500 BCE. They found various temples and evidence of religious rituals and offerings to gods based on some of the hieroglyphics from that era. And from then on, we are into the Olmec period from 1500 BCE to 200 BCE sometimes referred to as the pre-classic or formative period. This is the oldest culture in Mesoamerica. And Olmec is actually an Aztec name that means rubber people. They settled along the Gulf regions of the Gulf of Mexico, where the states of Veracruz and Tabasco are now. Yes, there are states in Mexico. Other countries have states. Come on. They built ver many temples and cities out of stone and brick, and they were very highly skilled sculptors. But aside from that, and a religious hierarchy of sorts indicating some type of priesthood, very little has actually been recovered from the Olmec culture. Many of their religious beliefs, which is going to be a recurring theme throughout the rest of this, is a, a great regard and reverence for the natural world, the earth, the sky, and the underworld. Caves would lead down to the underworld, Mountains would lead to all three if it also had hot springs and caves. There were depictions of deities, the rain goddess, earth gods, sky dragons, were jaguars, a corn god. Yes, there is a god of corn. And they didn't have names or numbers, or we haven't figured out what they were called, so we call them numbers. And one of them they just refer to as the rain baby, or... God IV, which is four in Roman numerals, so God for everybody. God for and the corn god. And it's unclear which may have come before or after here, but it's definitely helpful, if not influential, because drugs were very prominent throughout Mesoamerica. Mescaline, LSD, peyote, mushrooms, weed, water lily, jimson weed, which I think is just tobacco. Sometimes they would lick toads or use dried toad skin in different things. Salvia. Yopo. I guess you would have to have a lot of hallucinogenics in your system to be able to make sense of a corn god were jaguar deity that is just known as God 4. Yeah, I, that's got to be the only way that that can make sense, right? They had a lot of reverence for the natural world, including the animals that inhabited it like jaguars, crocodiles, eagles, sharks, snakes, and then also parrots, armadillos, buffalo, scorpions, ants, beetles, spiders, tree barks, leaves, dirt, monkeys, worms, moths, caterpillars. No, that's all just stoner babble, because it's fun for me to ramble on like that. However, many of the religious practices would be passed down through other cultures, such as human sacrifices, pilgrimages, different religious rituals often involving the aforementioned drugs above. 
basketball, weirdly enough, kinda, and a love of mirrors, which I didn't know. Just to name a few of the common items present on the trade route was obsidian, mica, rubber, jade, serpentine, and mirrors. Because, of course, why not? And this is where the first pyramid in Mesoamerica was discovered. This is where it was the very first one, the La Venta. It's a step pyramid, but now, thanks to the passage of time and don't know what else could be, literally anything maybe, it's just a mound now. It's just but this temple was actually really cool. I'm guessing in its time was really cool. So it where it the pyramid ran along a north-south axis and it had four big heads facing outwards placed at key points centered around the pyramid. It's thought that these heads would guard the temple palace or keep things out of sacred areas that they thought were important. But for some reason, sometime between 400 and 300 BCE, many of the monuments at a lot of the various Olmec sites were inadvertently destroyed. And we actually don't know a whole lot else about the Olmecs, because they seem to have just disappeared shortly thereafter. We don't know where they came from, or where did they go. Which is convenient, because we're moving on to the next era, which is the Zapotec era, from 600 BCE to 800 CE. They were known as the Cloud People, and I can't spell people. I spelled it P-E-E-P-L-E. -E -E. Good for me. They inhabited the southern highlands of Central America and would ultimately end up settling in Monte Alban, which is where present-day Oaxaca is. It replaced San Jose Mogote as the capital and served as a burial place for kings for over a thousand years. They established trade with the Olmecs at some point and most likely dominated the region because of a very strategic vantage point from the top of a mountain or hill. There were three distinct groups of Zapotec from the Valley, Sierra, and Southern regions. They started development of writing, math, astronomy, architecture, art, irrigation, and the calendar. Ooh, that's going to come up later, of course. Don't worry. They also had this cool thing called a whistling jar. They would design this jar with two separate cavities inside, and whenever you would pour water, there was a hole drilled into one side of the other one that would cause a whistling sound to come out through the hole. So you're just pouring yourself a cup of water... And their religion is super interesting, but also bizarre as fuck. They, of course, revered the rain, sun, wind, earth, and war gods. Just to look at a few of the deities in their pantheon, we have Beido, god of seeds and wind. Kokijo, Kokiho. god of rain and lightning, who was depicted as a snake jaguar thing. Kopischa, I don't think that's correct. But it was the god of sun and war, depicted as a macaw, just a giant parrot. That'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? Giant man parrot that storms at you with a big spear and flies away after it stabs you in the face with it. And you have Kokebila, which is a god of the earth's center. Wechana, which is the mother goddess. And two different corn gods this time. There's Pitao Kozobi and Bat God. God of corn and fertility. Hell yeah. Nothing gets me horny like corny. Don't ask. I don't know either. 
So let's move on to the Teotihuacan era from 200 BCE to 900 CE. Teotihuacan, located in central Mexico, also is actually an Aztec name, which means place of gods. Teotihuacan was the largest and most influential and revered city at the time. Started out as a small village and ended as an enormous megacity, thought to only be rivaled by Quilco, which was destroyed by a volcano in around 100 CE. I don't have anything else on the volcano, so I must have just left in that part because Quilquilco is really fun to say when you're stoned. But how they end up as a giant, enormous megacity when they started so small from such humble beginnings? Well, they turns out there was a lot of obsidian in Pachuca. So they used the obsidian to make pointy weapons and establish trade routes for cotton, salt, cacao to Oosh. make chocolate, which... Oh, chocolate. Not quite what we think of. Not quite the chocolate that we have today. It's a little bit different. But that could be a whole different episode for a whole nother day, the history of chocolate. That's Would anyone listen to that? Would y'all want to do that? What do you think? Where's the cat? Tish, do you want to do chocolate? You can't have any anyway. Well, I don't know about her. She's probably out, but let me know what you guys think. Maybe we'll do a chocolate episode one day. Further development of agriculture included squash, beans, tomatoes, peppers, amaranth, prickly pear cactus, and lots of different species of wild game, such as rabbits, deer, turkeys, and peccaries. I don't know what that is, but it sounds funny. They also developed a writing system here, but not quite as sophisticated as the Mayans was. It is thought that they controlled much of the surrounding area through military conquest and suppression, and their warriors would wear goggles that were made from shells. They carried dart throwers, had rectangular shields, covered in feathers, and... Of course, mirrors again. What's with all the mirrors? In 600 CE, once again, key points around the city deliberately deliberately burned. There I go. And no one knows who or why. Why is everything just burning with no reason? Perhaps it was a neighboring city who was jealous of their resources? Maybe they had less mirrors? I don't know. All right, on to the religious aspect of Teotihuacan era. It was also a rather large religious center for many people. And rather unusual for Mesoamerica at the time, they revered a spider goddess of creation. The unusual part being the goddess distinction. It was generally a male deity. But spider goddess, that's pretty cool too. There was also a water goddess. Alright, I'm going to try my best on this one. I'm not 100% sure this is right, but I think it's pretty close. Chalchutlique, I think is how you say that. And it was a nine foot tall water, water goddess, at least in statue form. She was nine feet tall. They also paid respects to Tlaloc, an Aztec war and rain god. Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent god. There's the Great Mother Goddess and her consort, a plumed serpent, which is the most badass-looking of all the deities, I think. It's also probably the favorite one to get stoned on ancient mushrooms and commune with. Or perhaps he was easier to talk to if you had some balche that was laced with the dried skin of the bufo frog. I bet that's the one you'd probably use to talk with the plumed serpent god. And there's Shipe Totec, which just 
take a wild guess as to what that's the god of. Do I do I really need to tell you at this point? It's corn, of course, it's corn. Teotihuacan is also the most visited ancient city in Mexico. It's roughly 20 square kilometers, and it is 15.5 degrees east of True North. Look, not all the facts are going to be super interesting, okay? This one is, though, because there was also just a big-ass street running all throughout the city, hitting all the major points of interest, called the Avenue of the Dead. It was 40 meters wide and 3.2 kilometers long. So the next two periods, the El Tajin period and Classic Maya period, run concurrently from about 250 to 950 CE. The El Tajin period going only from 250 to 900 CE. During the Tajin period, where they developed numerous urban centers and the first iteration of basketball, kinda. It was a game called Pocatok. Pocatok, I'm not 100%. This is what they were playing in El Dorado, which looks insanely difficult and super fun at the same time, and there's a little more on that later on. But we're going to spend the majority of the rest of the episode in the Classic Maya period from 250 to 950 CE. This was the height of Mayan civilization that we think of when we hear Mayan. They perfected their works towards math, astronomy, visual arts, architecture. The oldest recorded date from this era is 292 CE from somewhere in Tikal, and the latest is from 909 CE in Tonina. We're also going to look at a couple of the bigger cities that were major influences at this time, such as Chichen Itza and Uzmal. And then we're going to move on to the post-classic period from 950 to 1524 CE. By this point, many of the cities were abandoned and no one knows why. And you may have noticed that a few of those dates in those different time periods sort of run over each other as well. That's because there are many examples of development and progress, religious ideals, architecture, entertainment, that seems to be more of a collective thing building up to Mayan culture rather than one distinct group of people from a certain time period. It was more like a lot of different cultures developing independently of one another at the same time in different places, kinda. And by the way, each one of these civilizations that we talked about could have their own episode on their own. There's that much on all of these things. But I think it's relevant to take a look at a lot of these because they helped shape and influence the Maya that we know. And I know that ran long, and that was a lot of context, but I think we had to do it because it's important to include these things. So, we finally made it to the meat of this, the life of Mayans. The Mayans believed that life was cyclical. Nothing ever lived and nothing ever actually died. And it's from these beliefs that helped shape their gods and understanding of astronomy, architecture, and math. See, after someone dies, there's not really a heaven or a hell to go to. I mean, sort of, but it's a little bit different. The rules are pretty interesting. So their underworld was called Shibolba, or the place of fear. And in Shibolba, this is where the sprouting grounds of the world tree 
that reached all the way up to the place of misty sky, or the Tamuanchan, and the creatures that inhabited Shibulba would often try to trick or destroy a soul rather than help it along its way to Tamuanchan. There were nine underworld realms and 13 higher realms that a soul would have to navigate through in order to reach the tip-top of Tamo and Chan. And I like to think of it as sort of a video game. There's nine dungeons that you have to get through in the first half of the game, and then there's a break in it, and then turns out, oops, there's even more to do because the story is even deeper than you previously thought, and now you have so many more questions that you have to trudge through 13 more dungeons, like the longest Zelda game ever, and each one of those realms has a tricky boss that requires a key item from the dungeon to defeat it. But it's okay, because there's also... Hey, there's the cat. Hi, Tish. She came in to talk about video games with us, you fucking nerd. That's okay, nerds are welcome here. Everyone's welcome here. Anyway, they happen to have certain cheat codes, sort of, to reach the end game instantly. Alright, I'm gonna move on from the video game stuff. If you died in childbirth, if your uh, sacrificial victims died on the battlefield, if you died in the paint playing poke toke, died playing some basketball, that was considered honorable, or even through suicide, unaliving yourself taking yourself out. All acceptable ways to get instant access to Tamawanchan. And I know everybody out there is just as interested in I am as who did they worship or whom did they worship. Ishtab, for one, she has to be the most metal goddess deity I've ever heard of in my entire life. She's the goddess of suicide and is often depicting as a rotting corpse hanging from a noose which is fucking metal. But not all the cities around at this time worshipped the same god, at least not in the same name. But the symbology that the gods represented remained consistent throughout all cities. They just had different names for them. The Yucatec Maya called their underworld Metnal, whereas the Quiche Maya, Quiche Maya, they, theirs was Shibulba, but it was the same thing. Kuiche had 13 deities, while the Yucatec only had two. And they all struggled to create humans from, guess what? Yep, they created humans from corn. Now, we're corn, guys. We are corn. That's fun. And the gods controlled or were involved with basically every single aspect of life. From the weather, birth... Death, the harvest, love, when you went to the bathroom, what kind of psychoactive enema you would use to commune with what god to figure out how big your breasts or penis is going to be, whatever. It's probably also a mirror god somewhere in there. Who knows? Literally everything could be attributed to some sort of deity, despite them often being depicted as cross-eyed. And oftentimes the parents would bind children's skulls to look more elongated like the corn god. And they would dangle beads in front of them to make them go cross-eyed. So let's get to know just a few of the interesting deities that I came across here really quick. There's Akan, the god of intoxication, wine, and balche, or mead, which is what they would add dried toad skins to. 
and I think Stabentum, they would add to the Balche and use it as a sort of enema to get a transcended state of mind even faster to commune with gods during certain rituals. And by the way, Balche means either belch or groan, which is very appropriate because when I did still drink and I got trashed on mead at the Ren Fair, all I wanted to do was belch and groan all day long, so that seems appropriate. Then there's Akat, spelled A-C-A-T, so I'm just seeing a cat. The god of tattoos and fetuses. There's Akushtal, the god of birth. Akumish Unikob, a minor water god of cenotes and pools. Amuzankab, a deity that took care of bees. Oh, bee god, nice. Then there are the Bakabs, the four gods of the wind which hold up the corners of the earth. There's Muluk to the east, Khan to the south, Ish to the north, and Kawak to the west. Not sure of that last one. Muluk and Khan, the winds would converge and create positive energy, while Ish and Kawak would converge and create negative energy. And it's through this convergence of positive and negative energies that their creator gods were able to figure out how to create us out of corn, I think. There's the god Kamazots, which is the bat god of Shibolba that feeds on blood. Chuck, supreme god of storms. Not sure if it's Sisin or Kisin, Kaisin, C-I-S-I-N, the god of death. And Tetzcatlipoca, oh yeah, the uh, god of smoke and mirrors. Of course, found, of course, why wouldn't there be one? That's actually Aztec, but you know what, so is Quetzalcoatl. It's okay. Alright, we're almost there, guys. I know, this one's, there's a lot in this one. The Temple at Chichen Itza, El Castillo. Also the Temple of Kulkulkan. It is a physical representation of the secular calendar, but it's also designed to bring back the plume serpent god to the temple twice a year at each equinox. What that means is, the way the temple was designed was that during the equinox at each year, the sun would cast a shadow that runs down the length of the stairs all the way down to the bottom of the stairs, which had snake head statues. And the way the shadows would go down the stairs would resemble a serpent. And all the way down to the bottom, it would make just this giant shadow snake, which is badass. When talking about the city of Chichen Itza itself, it's thought to have been a refuge for many migrants after the fall of Teotihuacan. And there seems to be a lot of internal debate among archaeologists about whether or not the Toltecs conquered them during some expansion campaign, or if a mutual trade route helped share cultures between the two, because there's many, many similarities in the architecture. They had an observatory called Caracol, which was uh, sometime before 800 CE. The flight of steps leading up to a circular tower structure was used mostly for looking at Venus. And there's also the Temple of Warriors, a three-level pyramid built sometime between 800 and 1050 CE. Two colonnades on either side created a halfway enclosed courtyard. But really quick, back to the Kulkulkan. So the staircase leads up each of the four sides, the four-sided pyramid. It's about 24 meters high. And at the top is a room that has depictions of jaguars and round shields. 
Each one of those staircases is 91 steps, except for the north side staircase, which is 92. If you add all those up, it equals 365. And the temple itself was also built on top of a huge cenote, 165 feet from north to south, and 200 feet from east to west. And I just wrote EW for east to west, so now I'm just seeing L. It was also constructed on top of an already existing pyramid, which helped them make it so big. There were also four more cenotes in the cardinal directions pointing away from the pyramid. These provided a very, very abundant water source. Why do you think I brought up the god of cenotes and pools? Because it's relevant to this entire thing. Boom! Moving on to Uzmal, another important Maya city. It was most likely the capital of smaller cities located in the Puk region, and for some reason was largely unaffected by collapse of many of the other Mayan cities in the area around 900 CE. This one seemed... just missed me with that shit, I guess. Most of it's oriented to the northeast, except for the House of the Governor, which is aligned with Venus at its southernmost cycle. House of the Governor, yet another giant pyramid-esque building. There's also something called the Pyramid of the Magician, which is sort of egg-shaped when viewed from above, and had three levels to it, and indicated by the masks carved into the staircase leading into a giant terrifying snake mouth. Probably the best location for hallucinogenic enema-based deific communion. You know, do drugs and talk to God. And I can't not talk about something called the Nunnery Quadrangle, right? It's just this huge courtyard marked by four rectangular buildings on each side. There's a ginormous staircase on the south side that leads to a magnificent archway entrance to. And on the north side building, which is the highest building up, that one has 13 doors. The south side, which is also the lowest building, has 9 doors. The west side has 7, which is representative of the earth turtle god Pawatun. It's thought that this is where the sun would set and descend into the underworld. And then the building on the east side is thought to be where the sun would rise from the underworld, and it doesn't mention how many doors it has, but I think it would also probably have seven, since it would mirror the west side setting sun to the east side rising sun, I think. Okay, calendar. The damn Mayan calendar. Probably the first thing a lot of you thought of when you found out we were talking about Mayans today. Turns out, there's actually two working in sync with one another. There's the Hob calendar, which is a civil calendar consisting of 365 days, 18 months, and each month is about 20 days each. And there's also the Tzolkin calendar, or Hobbit count, I mean the sacred calendar, which is 260 days, three groups of months at about 20 days each. The article that I read here didn't do the math, so I had to figure it out, and that hurt my brain, but it's 13 months there, I think. And these would work together to make the calendar round, but they couldn't go any farther in the future than about 52 days. Tish just spent way too long trying to figure out how to open the door to leave. But because they couldn't predict any farther than 52 days in the future, they devised a long count calendar, which is, this is the one that caused the end of the world in 2012, or the supposed end of the world in 2012. You know what, didn't, 
Doesn't it seem like everything started to just get real fucking weird in 2012? There, a lot of weird stuff started happening right around January 2013 and onward since then. There's been a lot of weird stuff happening since then. Maybe the world did end. So these long count calendars, they had cycles developed into each one of them called a baktun. And this one, the end of the world calendar that we're referring to, started sometime around 3114 BCE, and it shifts into the next Baktun on December 12th, 2012, when the world ended, remember. But archaeologists have since discovered a calendar workshop in the ruins at Zoltun, and inscriptions on the wall indicated that they were extended way past the previous end of the world date. Which makes sense when you think about it, because Mayans would have thought a end of the world was a foreign concept. They had no understanding of an end of the world because of their cyclical worldview. Nothing ever died and nothing ever lived, so they wouldn't have included a Armageddon-type event in their calendars. Now we're on to one of the really more interesting parts, for me anyway, was the daily life of Mayan people, or Memba Uinikub. They were some early risers. They got up really super early. The entire extended family would sleep together in a one-room house on reed mats on the floor. And for breakfast, breakfast. they would have a cornmeal porridge flavored with honey and chilies, which I kind of want right now. I'm hungry. The girls and women would wear blouses and long skirts. Men and boys, just loincloth. Sometimes they would also wear a cape if they were cold. Commoners were, of course, the largest social class, but as with all cultures, also the lowest on the pyramid, with the nobility at the very top. Part of the nobility were the priests, scribes, some of the elite warriors, government officials, Middle class was the artisans, traders, weavers, potters, and your regular shady non-elite warriors. Most Maya, being a culture largely based on agriculture, were farmers during the harvest season. But after that, they would help to build the cities. And this is my argument for when people say, I want to go visit these times and do things like these old cultures used to do. No, you don't want to do that. Because the reality of it was, the whole day was filled with back-breaking physical labor. Women would stay home, they would, they would weave their own clothes, they grinded their own corn, they cooked, they raised all the damn kids, they'd go to the market, they'd have to check on all the beehives, make sure that Amuzan Cobb is doing his job protecting the bees. Then the men and boys would tend to all the fields, Growing all of the same crops I've mentioned before, but also a few others. They would have livestock that they tended to, including dogs, ducks, deer, turkeys, and... Oh, yeah, I found out peccaries are pigs, guys. They had wild pigs. Pigs are cool. Then they would also fish from various water sources. A common lunch that they would eat was a corn dumpling filled with meat and vegetables, which sounds delicious. And dinner was basically whatever the shit we got lying around the house fajitas, because they would make tortillas later on and have that for dinner. And aside from being a farmer, you could be a porter, which it doesn't really expand on what that actually is, 
a limestone courier, or you could be a servant to somebody up in the nobility. They didn't have metal, but they had very sharp, very pointy, very shiny obsidian to help with many of their daily tasks. And you may have noticed that I didn't mention horses or oxen in any of the livestock earlier. No, they had to do everything by hand. They had no beast of burden available to plow anything or do any of the heavy workloads like pulling things. They all had to just figure it out by hand without. But once a month, there was at least some sort of religious celebration with lots of food and dancing, and I'm certain there was an inordinate amount of God only knows what kind of drugs or what kind of God I'm talking about in that moment. And, of course, playing some deadly poke toke. Maybe not deadly this time, since it's a celebration. Sometimes it was just played for fun. And this was the daily life for many Maya, right up until... Bishop Diego de Landa showed up in 1549 CE and immediately decided to roust the heathens among the newly converted Christians. Turns out, corn Jesus has a similar origin to regular Jesus, so the story was easily accepted by many people. And on July 12th, ah, oh, it's almost my birthday, 1562, ah, missed it by about 430 years. He decided to burn 40 Mayan codices and over 20,000 images in steel, which are sort of like a stone tablet with inscriptions on them. In his own words, he said, We found many books with these letters, and because they contained nothing that was free from superstition and the devil's trickery, we burnt them, which, is the, which the Indians greatly lamented. In other words, the made-up shit they like is different from the made-up shit I like, so they're wrong and I must destroy them. They're also not Indians, you asshole. Get a globe. But wait, there's more. That's not all he did. He doubles down and starts torturing people until they see the path of the church that he has laid out for them. And upon his return to Spain, he was condemned by the other priest and forced to explain his actions. If not for his book, Relación de las Cosas de Yucatán, we would have significantly less information available, so that may have been his saving grace there, I guess, kinda, because only three codices managed to survive the conflagration of Mani, as the event has become known as throughout history. And you may have noticed that the date shifted dramatically there, because these events take place in the post-classic period. Now at this point, most major cities have been abandoned, and it's unclear really as to why. The widely accepted belief for a long time was that the Battle of Utatlan in 1529 usually signifies the end of Mayan civilization. Untrue. By the time Spain had arrived, most cities were already abandoned, and they had no idea that the natives were even responsible for building the all the awesome-looking stuff all over the place, everywhere. They had no idea it was even them. They just magic, cool-looking stuff all over the planet for me to find. And contrary to popular belief, the Maya did not actually vanish, and there are many still alive today, right around somewhere around 6 million. And it's pretty insulting to think that they actually vanished, because the cities of Chichen Itza, Bonampak, Usmal, Altunha, 
their descendants still continue to practice the same rituals that they would practice a thousand years ago, save for a few alterations here and there, but largely would be recognized by their ancestors. Alright, we made it all the way through. I know that was a lot. I'm out of breath. So my biggest takeaways from this week, turns out there's a lot more to Mesoamerican culture than I previously thought, and damn it, it is so fascinating. I really want to read more about this stuff. I didn't know that they had a cyclical worldview, and what is with all the corn and mirrors? Holy shit, there's so <laughs> That has to be the name of this episode. What is with all the mirrors? And um, also, fuck Diego de Landa for burning all those books. That's not cool. Imagine how much more we would know about this culture if he hadn't burned all their shit in a religious hissy fit. There I go, accidentally rhyming again. Real quick, the reason for including so many other different cultures and different time periods... If I had replaced every instance of a different culture's name, Teotihuacan, Zapotec, Olmec, Toltec, if I had replaced any of those names with Mayan in place of them, many of you probably wouldn't have known the difference, and myself included. If I had listened to this on some other podcast or a different YouTube thing or wherever, somewhere, I wouldn't... I would not have known the difference in any of these things, and I think it's important to point out that all of these different civilizations and culture were all relevant to the time period in which we traditionally think of in respect to the Maya, and without that distinction, it gets very confusing, and I hope I was able to keep it well-organized enough for everyone to follow. But that's it. That's all I got this week. I... <laughs> I really, really, truly hope you enjoyed the show. It's not really super simple to put something together like this, but I've really come to enjoy the creative process and just trying to figure out how to make something fun for everyone to enjoy on Sundays. Or whenever you listen to this, it doesn't matter. I know you'll get around to it eventually. But what I would love from you is to hear some feedback from over on the Facebook page, if you can get over there and drop a few comments. Whatever you're playing this episode on today, uh, do five stars, review, whatever thing they have for you to help the show out. And next week, we're going to jump right back over into true crime again. Going to go over the Terra Calico case, who disappeared in Belen, New Mexico in September 1988. Thank you all so much for coming back and listening. It really does mean a lot to me that you come back every week. Stay kind and get high, everybody. Until next week. <laughs> <laughs>